kids' time and follow Patrick and Cooper and Eloise right out the door there. There's Miss Ashley. Well, happy Mother's Day. We're glad you're here. If you are here for, with us for the first time, again, I want to reiterate how grateful we are uh, to have you here. If you are visiting as a mother or you have your mother with you, we, uh, we're really, really, really blessed. So we're glad that you are here. We have been in this um, long journey through the book of Acts. We have looked at every single word and every single verse of this book over the past really close to two Well, it's been about a year, a little bit over a year and a half, a year and three quarters now, and we have examined it from top to bottom, and we are starting chapter 25, which is going to be the last three chapters of the whole book. So there's 28 chapters, and we are finishing the last three. We are coming into the home stretch, and it's been a really fascinating time. There's this giant drama that is unfolding in the book, and we are right in the middle of it, and so we've kind of explored it over these past you know, weeks and weeks and weeks, and we've come to the third and final movement. The first was the sort of birth and growth of the church. The second was these missionary journeys that Paul went on and the way the gospel was taken to the ends of the earth. And the the third movement is sort of Paul's call by the Lord himself to take the gospel to Rome, which essentially would be uh, the kind of launching point for the entire missionary movement uh, that we know and are a part of today. And the, and the Lord was calling Paul to take the gospel there. And the, the last section of the book, all six chapters, is about Paul's journey there. And it's not an easy journey. Uh, right now, Paul is in prison in Caesarea, at least at where we are in history. He's in prison in Caesarea. He had returned from the missionary journeys, and he ended up in Jerusalem, which is a really hostile place, not only to Paul, but hostile to the gospel. The Jewish leaders there were in direct opposition. I mean, real hatred, as we're going to talk about today, towards the gospel movement. And people knew it, and Paul still felt called to go there. He believed the Lord was calling him there. And when he arrives, he arrives to an angry, hostile crowd, and they they seize him and accuse him of uh, defacing the temple and doing all kinds of of things there, and the Romans actually step in and, and save Paul's life. They rescue him, and they put him in the army barracks, and they go to kind of torture him and beat him to figure out why everyone's so mad at him, and they learn that he's a Roman citizen, and, the, and they learn that there is also going to be a murder plot against him. And a couple of weeks ago, we explored this, this murder plot that the Jews, le- Jewish leaders had taken this sort of bound oath never to eat or drink until they murdered Paul. And so Paul's nephew, his little young nephew, finds out about it, and he tells Paul and tells the Roman soldiers, and, and they do something incredible. They escort Paul out of Jerusalem with 470 soldiers, right? Sp- uh, 200 spearmen and 200 infantry and 70 cavalry ride out of Jerusalem in the middle of the night. Uh, all the way down to Caesarea, 70 miles, and they take Paul to stand trial there before the governor, and his name was Felix. And Felix was, he was a corrupt and kind of broken guy, a lot like all the Roman leaders really were at the time. And he was a corrupt and broken guy, and he didn't really know what to do with, with Paul, and so he holds this trial, and all the Jewish leaders come in from Jerusalem, and they put Paul on trial, and they They can't really find anything wrong with them. And they kind of accuse Paul of several things. The Jewish leaders accuse Paul of of being a political menace. So in other words, you are causing riots all over the Roman world, and and that would have been a pretty serious accusation. They also accuse him of being the ringleader of a non-approved religious sect. So they uh, basically the Romans kind of gave permission for people to practice their own religion as long as it fell within a certain set of boundaries. And, 
and the, and the Jewish people accused Paul of starting a, a sect called the Way, this group of Christians. It was a non-approved religion, which would have been punishable by death by the Romans. And then finally, they, they accused him of sort of desecrating the temple, of bringing a, a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, a guy by the name of Trophimus, who they had seen Paul walking with in Jerusalem. They accused him of bringing that guy into the inner sanctum of the temple, which was not true. Paul had just been walking with him. But these were the accusations, and every single one of them carried death. Well, Felix didn't know what to do. And so he's like, I don't see anything wrong with him, so I'm going to have to figure this out. So he says, I need five days. And he calls for Lysias, the commander of the Roman guard out of Jerusalem, to come and give him some more information. Well, five days turns into two years. And Paul waits in prison for two years without being convicted of anything and, out with, and being, not being convicted or being found guilty. And so we ended last week with Paul just waiting in jail. Right, for two years, knowing full well that God has called him to Rome. Because on the, the day that he was, about, the night before actually, he was about to be murdered in this sort of crazy murder plot, Jesus shows up himself and he looks at Paul and he says, hey, take courage because as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you must go to Rome. And so Paul then goes through that whole sort of uh, movement where the Roman army takes him to Caesarea and he stands trial and he, he ends up being in jail for two years, still with no word on what's happening, and Paul is just waiting. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 25. Paul is waiting in jail in Caesarea, and Felix, the governor, actually gets recalled back to Rome because he's kind of a crook. And so they're going to send in a new guy. And uh, so Paul's going to kind of start this process again. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open up to Acts chapter 25. And all that sort of history, just so you can get to where we are, because context of Scripture is really important. I want you to understand what's going on. It's one thing for Paul to be in jail. It's another thing for Paul to have been waiting for two years. So um, kind of innocent, not convicted of anything. So it, it, the whole circumstance and drama changes everything. So let's, uh, let's take a moment and then let's dive into the Word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your Word. I thank you, God, that it is uh, It's just so exciting to me. I just love your Word. I love that you have laid out your entire redemptive plan for us in Scripture. And God, I pray that we would honor that and we would take it seriously. God, we have unpacked every word of this book. We have looked at every nuance. We have looked at every verse. And God, in, in, in those amazing moments, you have spoken to us. You've taught us. You've revealed yourself to us. And so, God, I would ask that you would do that again today. That as much of a history story as this may be, God, it is a call to our hearts as followers of Christ. Lord, and I pray that you would prepare us to think about our own uh, limits of obedience and, and maybe pushing ourselves to step outside of a safe and secure and comfortable Christian life into a world that says yes to Jesus. Take a moment in your own heart just as you sit here and just pray that for the next few moments that you may be able to just hear from the Lord, that he would just speak to your heart, that he would teach you. Just ask God to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and just pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name. Uh, we do this every week. We just encourage you to pray for the people around you. Be in the habit of praying for the people. That God would move in their hearts and their lives. Lord, we ask that you would, um, you would reveal truth to us. God, we will not discover you on our own. You are the revealer of truth. And so this morning, God, we ask that you would speak directly to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I know each week it's a lot of history to kind of recap on. I'm trying to do it in quicker and quicker. But it's, I, I do find it's really important to remember where we are because it really matters. And it's going to make a huge difference if we understand this movement when you hear what we're going to run into today. So if you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 25. We're just going to be in the first 12 verses um, as Paul is going to stand trial again in front of someone new. So this is Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court in order that Paul be brought before him. And when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before these men there on their charges? And Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. However, if I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. So Paul is in prison in Caesarea. Uh, Felix, who was the governor, had told him that it needed, he needed five days. Five days, and I'll call Lysias down from Jerusalem, the commander of the Roman army. I'll hear his testimony, and I'll make a decision. And Felix was in a really tight place because the Jewish leaders wanted Paul dead. And the area was already in incredible civil unrest. And, and Felix knew that if he released Paul, he was going to most likely have the revolt of the Jews on his hand, uh, which is not going to go well. But he also knew that if he released Paul and Paul was innocent as a Roman citizen, that Felix himself could be punished by death for having a Roman citizen wrongly accused, right? So he's in this sort of really difficult, double-edged sort of sword kind of place. And so after five days goes by, he just doesn't do anything. And for two years, Paul sits in jail in Caesarea waiting for something. But what we learned last week is that Felix had regular conversations with Paul. At first, he and his wife Drusilla went, and they sat with him, and Paul talked to him about the gospel, and he talked to him about justification, and he talked to him about judgment, and he shared the, the whole entirety of the gospel. And then over the next two years, Luke tells us in that, at chapter 24 that they had many conversations. So Paul has developed this relationship with Felix, where he has shared the gospel over and over and over again with this guy, uh, this leader of the entire area, uh, as he waited in prison innocently held and wrongly accused. Well, Felix was a crook, and he was a criminal, and he had history is not very kind to him, and he made some terrible decisions. And Josephus, the early church historian, a Roman early church historian, tells us that Felix was recalled to Rome because he brutally took kind of a, uh, a situation between the Syrians and the Jews, and he killed a ton of people. 
And so Caesar calls Felix back to Rome to stand trial for his own sort of misgivings. And they send in a new guy, a guy by the name of Festus. And we don't know much about Porcius Festus. We know that he's going to die in two years. But we do know that he's a little bit more just than his predecessors and the, the successors that would come after him. He seems to be somewhat fair. But our text tells us this guy Festus arrives most likely by boat because Caesarea was a harbor town coming in from Rome. He arrives by boat and it says within three days he makes his way to Jerusalem and he assembles the Sanhedrin, which is not all that surprising that he would go to Jerusalem. I mean, it was sort of the, the largest city and the hub of activity in the whole area. But the number one thing on Festus' plate is this issue with the Apostle Paul. Right, This guy that had been held in prison, and he had probably heard all about it already. And so he gets up to Jerusalem, goes the 70 miles inland from, Jerusalem to, or from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and he assembles the Sanhedrin. Now at this time, two years later, there's a different high priest and there's a different chief priest. Right, Leadership has cycled off, and Ananias, the guy that kind of spearheaded the whole kill Paul the first time, has been kind of moved out. And in fact, in a few short years, he's going to be murdered in a Jewish revolt anyway because the people hate him. And so he's out and the leadership's out. It's a new group of people. The Sanhedrin is relatively the same, but the leadership is, is different. And, and so Festus goes before him and he goes, okay, so we're going to have to, we're gonna have to talk about this guy, Paul, right? I mean, we've got an issue. And they, sh- they kind of tell all the charges again. And, and, and Festus says, okay, and they say, listen, as a favor to us, right? Three days in office, as a favor to us, the leaders of this basic entire city, the entire region, we want you to bring Paul up here and have him stand trial before us, right? Do us this favor. Now, Festus knows that if he does this, he will gain a ton of favor with the Jewish people. I mean, that's a big deal. When you're coming into an area of civil unrest and the guy that came before you is actually being tried for the way that he held it, if you win some favor with these guys, then you know, that's a pretty good deal. But he also has read all the case studies, most likely. He has read the uh, letter from Lysias, the army commander. He's heard the case notes. He knows that Paul's being held without being found guilty, innocent. And so he's thinking, well, he's a Roman citizen. I can't just hand him over to the Jewish people. Then I would be responsible. And so he says, okay, I, I can't do it. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do it in Caesarea. We're going to hold a trial there. Well, the Jews are frustrated because they had a plan again, an assassination attempt again. Their hope was that when they moved Paul up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, they were going to ambush him and kill him. Now, remember, two years earlier, 40 Jewish men took an oath to the death. They would not eat or drink until they murdered Paul. That was their plan. We will not take food or water until we killed him. Now, obviously, they probably eaten and drink or they were all dead. But they, that was the plan, right? They were going to not eat or drink until they killed him. The first assassination attempt fell through. Well, they have come up with a second one. Here's what we'll do. Great plan. While they bring him up for this trial, because Festus is going to do us this solid, they bring him up, we're going to kill him. They're going to ambush him. So they're willing to forego their freedom. They're willing to forego their lives to kill Paul again. Well, Festus is not going to, he doesn't necessarily know that, but he knows that this is a bad idea. And so he says, nope, everybody come down here. So he got, travels back to Caesarea. And uh, the Jewish leaders come in, and he stands trial with Paul. He calls Paul in again, and here we go again, right? So Paul comes in before the, uh, the court, and they make the same charges, serious charges, death penalty charges, right? Political uh, menace, religious ringleader of a non-approved sect, and he, he desecrated the temple. These are all 
punishable by death. Two by the Romans and one by the Jews. Paul basically says, I've done none of those. Those things are all outright lies. But if I have done anything that's punishable by death, then kill me, right? But I haven't, and you know I haven't, and so here's the deal. I'm not going to just go quietly. And so Festus says, okay, I got a plan. How about if you voluntarily go up to Jerusalem and stand trial? Now, it's a purely political move because Festus knows that if he can talk Paul into going to Jerusalem, then Paul's waiving his political rights, waiving his rights as a Roman citizen. And therefore, if he gets killed on the way or if he gets found guilty when he's there, hey, Paul chose to go. Festivus is clear. Like, it's our Festivus. That's a different deal altogether. <laughs> Happy Festivus for the rest of us. So Festus knows that he's clear, right? He knows that he is in the clear. And so he's like, please, please, please say yes. And Paul's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I know they're going to kill me, right? I've seen this all before. And he goes, I appeal to Caesar, right? I appeal to Caesar. Now, in the first century, let me give you a quick little, little history lesson. In the first century, if you were Italian, right, Italians only, you had the right to appeal your death case to Caesar. So if you were found guilty by a Roman tribunal that would deserve death, you had the right to appeal to Caesar to have Caesar ultimately decide if you could live or die, right? That was your right as an Italian. But if you were a Roman citizen that lived outside of Italy, you had that right only if there was not a precedence for your case before. So if another case had not already decided your outcome. Well, in this case, no one had seen anything like this. Paul was a Roman citizen falsely accused by the Jewish leaders. No one had seen any of this. And so Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. I want to go to Caesar. Now, the, the Caesar, the emperor at the time, is a guy by the name of Nero. Now, if you're familiar with church history at all, you should know the name Nero. Nero is the most brutal emperor known ever in the Roman Empire. He is responsible for all the things that you think about when you think about um, persecution and torture of Christians in the early century. Throwing them into gladiatorial rings, letting them be slaughtered by soldiers, torn apart by lions. Nero was a horrific and awful leader. And he'd only been in office for about three years. And his hatred for Christians was growing by the day. This persecution outbreak had not yet begun, but Nero's hatred for these believers was growing every day, and in about two years, it was going to hit full strength. And Paul says, I appeal to that guy. I'd rather go see him. And so Festus, knowing Roman law, says, okay. He gets his council together, and he goes, what are we going to do? He appealed to Caesar. And they said, well, there's no precedent for that. You've got to go to Caesar. And so they all come back and say, okay, you appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. And it's a tough place for Festus. He knows that if he sends Paul to Rome, he gets rid of the issue. But he also knows that Felix is on trial in Rome for his inability to correctly handle the upheaval that's happening down here anyway. And so if he sends Paul up there in front of Caesar and the Roman Senate, it's going to look like he doesn't have anything under control again. But he basically defers to the law. And he says, okay, so Paul, you're going to go to Caesar. So he's been granted approval to go to Rome. Now, it's a pretty straightforward piece of our sort of story, right? It's another trial. And for Paul, this had to have been a here-we-go-again moment. I mean, two years ago, we just sort of went through all this with Felix. Like, it was just here, and I had developed a relationship with him. And now, here we are again, and still God seems to be nowhere to be found. And as I started thinking about this text, I started really thinking about it in terms of obedience. And 
sort of Paul's heart to follow the Lord and how limited my own obedience is when it comes to following Jesus. Um, I mean, because if you think about it, we have to understand a few things. We have to understand how real this opposition was to Paul. Now, I, I know it doesn't sound like much because everywhere Paul goes and every time we talk through the book of Acts, we see Paul running into some kind of issues. Uh, angry crowds, abuse, prison, threats, whatever, all over the world. But this group of Jewish leaders seems to take things to a whole new level. I mean, right? They, they, they plan this sort of false accusation. They get the city all churned up. They, they plan an assassination attempt that falls through, right? Paul sits in jail for two years, and they still won't let it go. A new regime even takes it over, and they still want him dead so desperately that they're willing to risk their freedom and their lives. Because remember, when you ambush a Roman garrison of soldiers to kill the prisoner, you are now putting your own life in jeopardy because, number one, they're probably going to kill some of you. But number two, they're going to arrest you, and you're going to be tried and killed if you're caught. So you're taking your own freedom and your own life in your hands. I mean, this is the sort of hatred that we're talking about. And it wasn't just hatred towards Paul. We have to understand that. There was a growing, deep hatred for the gospel. And the Jewish leaders believed that if they could take Paul and get rid of him, kill him, that the movement would ultimately just die, right? If you killed, and you took off the head of the snake, if you will, eventually the whole thing would just collapse in on itself. And they believed that Paul was the head of this movement. We know as followers of Christ that Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the movement. Paul was just being used by him. But the Jewish leaders believed that if they could get rid of Paul, they had such a deep hatred. Paul was a traitor to them. He was raised as a Pharisee. He had betrayed his family. He had betrayed his friends. He had betrayed the country. He had done everything wrong. And he had done it all for this liar, this crazy Nazarene sort of lunatic who claimed to be God. And they hated that, hated it. And there was such a deep hatred. Now, we've experienced in our life people that don't like us. I mean, I experience it every day. Right? I mean, there are just people that aren't going to like you. Um, there are people that are going to gossip about you. There are people who are going to say things behind your back, true or not true. There's hurt, deep, real hurt. We've all had it. We all have had people in our life that just may hate you, whether you did something or not. But none of us, I promise, have experienced hatred like this, the kind of hatred that would cause someone to want to murder you and wouldn't be happy that you just found your way into prison but wanted you dead. I mean, that kind of hatred for the gospel is what Paul's facing. And he's got a few choices he has to deal with. Now, think about the choices Paul has. So he's sitting in prison, kind of his hope attached to Felix. Felix leaves to go deal his own issues. And as sort of a kind of get a last-minute favor, Felix says, I'm going to leave Paul in prison because I need the Jews to kind of say a few good words about me when I go to Rome. And so I know they'll be appreciative if I just leave Paul here. <clears throat> And so Paul knows he's going to face with a couple of uh, issues. He's got a, or a couple of options. The first option is that he's going to go ahead and say yes to Festus and his, his kind of request to go stand trial in Jerusalem. But Paul's no dummy. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Seventy miles up the road and the most dangerous roads up to Jerusalem, he knows that two years ago they planned an assassination attempt. <clears throat> he knows that they had to take 470 Roman soldiers to get him safely out of town. Paul knows that if he goes on that road, most likely they're going to kill him. I mean, he's not a dummy. He knows that the first option, if I choose to go that way, is most likely death by assassination. I'm going to get killed. 
If I go up to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me on the way, right? Anybody could plainly see that. That's option one. I could just die on the way there, which is a real possibility. Option two assumes that he gets there safely. So let's say I do say yes to Festus' request to stand trial up there, and I somehow make it, and they don't kill me, and I dodge all the assassination attempts, and I get there, and I stand trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. I already know how that's going to go. They are accusing me of desecrating the temple, which was the only crime that the Jews had the ability to carry out the death penalty for. It was the only one. The Romans had given them permission to carry out the death penalty for desecration of the temple. And the desecration of the temple meant that they allowed a non-Jewish person into the inner sanctum. Now, the the temple in Jerusalem had what they called a Gentile court, which is where anybody that was non-Jewish could come and listen, sell their wares, do their things, whatever. But if you stepped into the inner sanctum, you had to be Jewish and you had to be religiously clean, ceremonially clean. And if you weren't Jewish, your very presence made the entire facility and everybody there unclean. In other words, you called into kind of question every piece of religious belief that they had. So you couldn't go in there. And the Jews believed that Paul had been hanging out with this guy named Trophimus, who was an Ephesian, and he was in town, and they were walking together, and he believed that Paul had taken him into the inner sanctum. And they falsely accused him of that, and they wanted him dead. And Paul knew that if he stood trial before the Jews, they would say, hey, you took a Gentile in the inner sanctum. And he knew the punishment of that was death. And Paul knows he's not going to win. They've been falsely accusing him with witnesses who were lying for two full years now. So Paul goes, okay, option two, assuming I don't die on the way up there by assassination, is death by stoning, because that's how that death penalty was carried out. They would take you into the either outer court of the temple or outside of town. They would throw rocks at you until you died, and they would push you off a cliff and throw boulders over there and leave your body just dead off the edge, because Jerusalem was built on this hill with high cliffs. So I can say yes to Festus, and I can die by assassination on the way there. I can say yes to Festus. I can actually make it there and die by stoning when I get there. Or I've got this third option, right? And I can try and appeal to go to Rome. Now, Paul knew that this was somewhat of an option because Paul's one of the most educated guys in the entire area. I mean, he moved to Jerusalem to study when he was 13. He had the equivalent of two PhDs. He's a smart guy, and he's a Roman, and he knows the law, right? But that's not a cakewalk. All right, think about what he's appealing to. He's appealing to travel by sea all the way to Rome, to stand trial before Nero, who he already knows is developing a growing hatred toward Christians, to go and stand trial before this crazy emperor who most likely would find him guilty just to get rid of the problem or to make an example of what happens if you don't honor Caesar as God. Because the Romans believed that you could, and they conquered a land, that you could worship the gods that you believed in as long as it didn't interfere with Roman worship or Roman emperor worship. And Nero was the first to institute the fact that Roman emperors to be worshipped as God, the physical embodiment of a God. So Paul's going to take his chances with that guy. So he most likely is going to face death by crucifixion if he goes to Rome. That's how the Romans killed people. Or he would just die in prison because he's already been left there for two years, and this actually isn't all that uncommon. In fact, the book of Acts, and I don't want to give away the end, is going to end with Paul sitting in jail, just sitting there for years. So Paul's choices are death by assassination, death by stoning, death by crucifixion, or most likely death by just sitting in jail. 
That's not real great, right? I mean, and a lot of speculation has been written by scholars about why Paul kind of, kind of appealed to Rome and said, let me go there, let me go there, you know, I'll do that. And they've kind of written volumes on what Paul knew about Roman law. I just find it ridiculous. I think it's relatively easy to see. Two years earlier, Jesus stood beside Paul and said, listen, take courage, man. It's not over, right? You're going to testify in Rome the same way that you did in Jerusalem. And Paul, with his incredible obedience to Jesus, saw this as a window to go to Rome. I just believe it's that simple. Paul even looks at Festus and says, look, if I'm found guilty, then kill me. Like, I'm not afraid of death. But I've got a window to go to Rome, which is what Jesus called me to two years ago, and I'm going to do that, whatever it takes. Even if that means death by crucifixion at the hands of Nero or death in prison. Like, I choose that. I'm not going back to Jerusalem. God is sending me to Rome. And Paul's obedience carries him forward. And there had been volumes written about how Paul knew legal law and why he opted for Caesar to try and get his own freedom. And I just find that silly. I think it's clear. Paul knew his call to go to Rome and he wanted to follow the Lord and he just did whatever it took to do that. Paul's obedience was literally, and I mean most literally, limitless. He would follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. He would follow Jesus into the very heart of hatred, into the very hands of death, into the very throes of of opposition. Paul's entire life was built around saying yes to Jesus. And as I was reading this text and really sitting with it, I just was so, I'm just so convicted about how limited my own obedience is. Now let's be honest. I mean, most of our, even just mine, my obedience to the Lord is so limited. And it goes a little something like this. Lord, I will say yes, right? I will say yes to the Lord with these stipulations. Yes, as long as. So, yes, God, I will follow you as long as we take care of these, we do this, we line up the funding, we make sure this happens, you open these doors, right? You show me all the patterns and ways that this will work out and I will not fail, then I will absolutely say yes. And so God may call me or God may call us and we make sure that all the paths have lined out so that we can stay in some kind of resemblance of control and safety in the situation. So God, yes, as long as, show me, open these doors, do this. My obedience begins with a yes as long as. My obedience also has the word if in it. Yes, Lord, if. God, yes, if. I get time and I pray over it and I feel comfortable with it. Or God, if I gather people together and they're supportive. Or God, yes, if I can accomplish these things. Or if I finish school first. Or if I do this thing first. Or if, God, if the things come together. Yes, if. And then I always end it with sort of a yes until. So God, I will follow you until it gets really hard or really uncomfortable or really empty or lonely or whatever. Yes, as long as, yes, if, yes, until. These are the the defining boundaries of my obedience. But if it fits within that window, I am all in. And that window, small. But Paul's window, I mean, I find myself just longing for his heart. I mean, imagine, Paul's been sitting in jail for two years, wrongly convicted as an innocent man. And Paul was okay if he was in jail for being convicted for something he did. But they were holding him on nothing. I mean, imagine spending two years in jail, wrongly convicted, and still believing that God was in charge, in control, that God loved you. Right? Imagine that. 
Most of us, if we have a week of uncomfortability, are like, God, where are you? Paul's in jail for two years, just waiting. And the only guy he had hope in, Felix, just took off to save himself. And here comes Festus. Trials begin again. Right? I mean, think about Paul's opposition. Everybody in your life, outside of that little small circle of believers in Caesarea, wants you dead or just wants you out. The Romans didn't want him. They didn't want him at all. They just didn't know how to get rid of him. And the Jewish people wanted him killed. And the leaders wanted him murdered. And imagine the choices you're sitting with, right? Okay, so God, here I am, falsely accused in prison. I got everybody around me that hates me, like literally hates me. And they want me, they hate me so much they want me to die. And I've got a few choices. Well, I, I, I can die by being killed. I, I can die by stoning, which sounds really crummy. I could die by crucifixion, which I know how that goes. We saw that with Jesus. Or I can just die in prison. And outside of that, those were Paul's options. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life and what God may be calling you to or what he's whispering to your soul, but I'm guessing there's a few more options than those. Yet Paul's obedience to the Lord was, hey, in the middle of all that, opportunity. Like Jesus called me to go to Rome. I'm going that way, even if it leads to this. Like, I would have sat there and been so either mad or resentful or hurt that God had abandoned me when he told me he wouldn't. Because you told me we were going. You didn't tell me there were two years of prison time. And guess what? There's a lot more coming. Paul's going to get shipwrecked and bit by snakes, and he's going to spend up to six more years in jail. And we're not even going to ever know if he even stands trial before the emperor. The book just ends. And history does not tell us. But Paul's obedience was just yes, yes. No yes ifs, no yes untils, no yes as long as. I want my life, I desperately want my life to have a limitless obedience but I am not even willing to be inconvenienced by God. At the slightest inconvenience in my life, my faith falls, heart falls, wonder what's going on, I look for answers, and I want out. And we're all the same. We don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like feeling not safe and not secure, but an entire life that follows Christ is walking in those places. It's releasing our control dying to ourself and saying, God, you get all of me. Every tiny corner, every little part, every fear when I look in the mirror, every ounce of anxiety and worry, like you get all of it because you are God and you are in absolute, total, and beautiful control. And the limitless obedience begins by believing those things about God. Limitless obedience does not begin by saying, I'm just going to follow you into the throes of death. Limitless obedience begins by believing the things that God has said about himself. That I will never leave you nor forsake you. That you have no reason to worry. That I am in absolute and total control. And most importantly, that I love you. If we believe those truths, that God will never leave us nor forsake us, right? That God is absolutely in control that he loves us. Limitless obedience begins in believing those truths. 
We tend to think obedience begins with action, but obedience begins with the death to ourselves and believing that God is who he says he is. You know what? That's where I fail. That's where I fail. Because at the slightest moment of challenge, I wonder where God is. I pray for him to relieve this. I pray for him to take this off. But God's got this incredible things that are going to happen in Paul's life. And Paul is going to be the one that is going to begin the gospel movement that will ultimately lead to your life. Think about that. The gospel makes it here because Paul's a limitless obedience. God uses him to take it to Rome, which is like this hub of just information. Rome was the center of the world. And the gospel goes there. And we're going to learn in the book of Acts that every day Paul sat in jail and people would just come by and he'd tell them about Jesus. Different people. And he would spend all day, every day, talking about Jesus. And the gospel is going to explode from Rome. And 2,000 years later, somewhere in the past, whatever many years, it's going to intersect your heart. And Jesus is going to call you into his presence because of Paul's limitless obedience. I want that to be my life. And I deeply believe that if I were to look at each one of you and say, do you want that, you would say yes. But it begins not by being action-driven, but by believing the things that God says about himself, that he is in total control, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, right? And that he loves you. If you believe those truths, you'll follow that God anywhere because he will not fail me and he will not stop loving me. Whatever this world brings, I'll take it. So what would it take for you personally to drop your limited yes if, yes, until, yes, as long as, and just say, God, I believe who you, are, you say you are. And I trust you. And my obedience is without limits. Let's pray. God, I thank you for just your word, this sim- simple truth that it's just continues to be packed with, God. I, these are the little messages that aren't earth-shattering, but that are the They're the roadblocks of my faith. They're the roadblocks of my heart. Lord, like Paul, we're going to face opposition. We're going to have people in our life that hurt us, um, that say things behind our back, that abandon us, that leave us. We're going to have people in our life that turn on us. We're going to have situations in our life that get flipped upside down. We are going to face Opposition For some of us, we may be in that two-year waiting period. It just feels like forever sitting in jail. Maybe not literally, maybe, you know, meta- metaphorically, just sitting in prison. A prison that we've imposed on ourselves, a prison of fear, a prison of anxiety, a prison of worry. I will all sit in it. But God, you have promised us certain things as followers of Christ first and greatest is that you've promised that you are God. And that you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And you have promised, God, that you love us. And that you are in total and absolute control. And God, if we believe those truths, if we really believe them from the bottom of our hearts, then it's the beginning movement of death to myself and the beginning movement of limitless obedience. And it doesn't mean those steps are going to be easy to take. And it doesn't mean they're not going to have consequences. It just means that I'm willing to take them because I believe that you are who you say you are. And that at first sign of adversity, you didn't leave me. 
And God, you've never left Paul. You stood there. You walked with him. Your presence was so profoundly powerful. So Lord, as we close our time in worship this morning, I pray that you would just echo those truths to our hearts. That God, we can have limitless obedience, not because we have this great ability to follow you, but because we believe in the promises that you've already told us. And that we would walk to the ends of the earth, into the throes of the unknown, into the heartbeat of hatred, into the hands of death. Not because we have great faith and great power, but because we believe that God is who he said he is. And so, Lord, make those things true in our heart. Let us exchange our comfortable, safe Christian life for a life of limitless obedience. So, Lord, hear our cries. We'll close our time in worship. May it be the echo of our heart that cries out to you. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Thank you.